Good morning, everybody. Oh, my soul. Good morning, everybody. Good to see all of you. For those of you who don't know who I am, my name is Dana, and I'm one of the pastors at Cornerstone. Usually, I'm out of the Cornwall site, but they float me around wherever I'm needed. And so with Tyler and Haley being gone, I'm very privileged and honored to be here with you this morning. It is so super cool to see what God is doing here in his church in Montague. Here you are at two services with full praise band, and God is just pouring out a mighty work here. And so every time I come, I can see how God is growing us together, and it's super exciting to see. Uh, I'm a titles person, and, and so if you're taking notes or if you want to remember anything of this little chat this morning, I've entitled this morning's conversation, Huff and Puff. Huff and Puff. Now, if you're taking notes, you can spell that however you want, because um, I've spelled it three or four times in my writing of it. But, but if you have your Bibles with you, if you have a Bible app on your phone, I'd invite you to turn to chapter 7 of Matthew's Gospel, and we'll be looking there momentarily. Matthew chapter 7. Now, I understand that the expression says that the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, but you don't have to live that long or you don't have to meet too many people before you quickly learn that that truism does not always hold true. Often, all it takes is a glance in the mirror to discredit that statement. Because while it's true that many skills can be learned, most of us understand from personal experience that just because our parents or just because our guardians were super good at doing something, it doesn't necessarily mean that we'll be able to do it as good as they did it. Now, on both my wife's side of the family, as well as my own, I come from a long line of people who are handy. They are skilled with their hands. They're good with tools. They're able to build something out of nothing. You would keep them on your island in Survivor until the last possible moment. For those of you who remember the show MacGyver, I think there's a rerun now, but the original MacGyver was always making life-saving things out of paper clips and clay and whatever he could find to save the day. My parents can do that. My in-laws can do that. I cannot do anything like that. In fact, I remember early on when dating my wife, I said to Tavy, if, if she was looking for the stereotypical hunter, gatherer, mechanic, Mr. Fix-It for a life companion. This was date number two. I said, listen, I'm not your dude. Like, if that's who you're looking for, like, so, so we'll both move on here. And true to my word, if she was here this morning after 23 years of marital bliss, my wife would testify that if something handy needs done around the house that requires any amount of skill at all, it falls on her shoulders, and, and if she can't do it, then we call someone who can get the job done, because if we don't, I'll try it, and it'll cost us more to redo what I've done. So that's just the way our house rolls. Now, I didn't learn that lesson the day that I said I do to my wife. In grade 10, shop class, I made a pair of candle holders for my mom, literally, investing blood, sweat, and tears in this project. And so the day of the big reveal finally came. And with bated breath, I watched my mom as she unwrapped the shoebox that 
held her newly sanded, pristinely varnished candle holders that were snugly laid resting in a bed of white tissue paper. And imagine the depths of my despair when upon removing them from the box, she gave me a huge hug and kiss. And she said, Dana, thank you for the beautiful set of salt and pepper shakers. <laughs> so in that moment, in that moment, I was confronted with the truth that regardless how gifted my dad and my brother were at making things out of wood, eventually my father-in-law, my brother-in-law, they're both carpenters, it was certainly not my forte in any approximation. And while carpentry or mechanics have neither become arenas that I particularly enjoy, spending time with family and friends who are skilled in those arts have taught me some valuable life lessons. For example, they've reminded me that any worthwhile project carries a price tag, often in the form of time, energy, and money. Projects demand an investment of leaving our skin in the game, and it's best to come to grips with that before you pick up a hammer or a wrench. In Luke 14 and 28, Jesus asks, who would begin constructing a building without first calculating the cost to see if there's enough money to finish it? Every worthwhile project comes with a price tag. Secondly, they've taught me the craftspeople in my life have demonstrated that following the blueprint, following the design, matters. So whether you're baking a pie, whether you're sewing a quilt, whether you're assembling a table, whether you're changing the oil in your car, none of which you want me to do, by the way. Doing the right thing in the right way, in the right sequence, is important. This, too, is noted in scriptures. After discovering that the human race had become utterly depraved, in Genesis chapter 6, we find God giving a guy by the name of Noah the schematics for a boat. The Lord told Noah, I want you to build a large boat from cypress wood and waterproof it with tar inside and out. Then construct decks and stalls throughout its interior. Make the boat 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet high. Leave an 18-inch opening below the roof all the way around the boat. Put the door on the side. Build three decks inside the boat, lower, middle. I'll tell you what, there's not a lot of room for artistic interpretation there. And I just think, this is just my opinion, that verse 22 is one of the keys to why Noah was called holy before the Lord. Verse 22 reads, Noah did everything exactly how God had commanded him. He followed the blueprint he followed the design. Most people achieve the greatest degree of satisfaction if and when the end product looks as similar to the blueprint as possible. If you are assembling a jigsaw puzzle of a horse and it ends up looking like a chimpanzee, something has gone drastically wrong. If you're baking an apple crisp and it tastes like lasagna, something got messed up somewhere. If you're cross-stitching a rose and it ends up looking like my Boston Terrier, you get the idea. Sadly, this lesson is too often learned the hard way. How often, when I was a child, 
and I was putting together a plastic model of a car, did I try to skip from step two to step number five, only to find out that after I had got the thing glued together with cement, that those steps were vital to the structure, and I couldn't go back. For true artisans, masters of their craft, being precise is a rule to live and die by. A lesson that's reflected in the carpenter's expression, you measure twice and you cut once. A final lesson that the artisans in my family have impressed upon me is that of using the right tool for the right job. In my limited experience, of which demolition, I, I, I took a sabbatical from Cornerstone several years back, and while I was looking for work, one of the carpenters in the church, he knew I needed a paycheck, and so he threw me a bone, and he was doing demo. Best job other than what I do now in my life, because you need no skill. You just get to whack things with a sledgehammer and throw them into a dumpster. And so I found that there have, in my personal experience, I found that there have been true, there have been few problems that a hammer couldn't solve. But I have seen enough artisans to understand that for the best result, you use the correct tool for the correct job. If you're smart, you don't bring a knife to a gunfight. A square screwdriver won't help you much when you have a Phillips screw that needs undone. Use the right tool for the right job. Laugh with those who laugh. Weep with those who weep. And so when building, as with life, there's a price tag attached to every project. Following the design or blueprint is critical. Whenever possible, use the right tool for the right job. These are important life lessons that I've picked up from having handy people in my family. And in Matthew 7, Jesus, who interestingly to me, spent the formative years of his earthly life in a carpenter shop, draws our attention to two more fundamental life lessons about building. And so this morning, as we look at Matthew chapter 7, I'd invite you to please stand for the reading of God's word. Would you stand, please? Matthew chapter 7, starting at verse 24. Whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken them to a wise man who built his house on a rock. The rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall, because it was founded on rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell and great, says Jesus, was its fall. And as we used to sing in Sunday school, and the house on the sand went splat. This morning, this is the word of the Lord. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we don't have to beg you to come. You have already, you are already here. You were here before any of us came through the doors this morning. I thank you for inhabiting the praises of your people. And I pray now that you would help us to, to fix our heart, fix our mind, fix our thoughts on you, 
I pray, God, that you would anoint my mind and my tongue. I pray that you would give all of us discernment so if I say anything that is, is offside, that we would recognize that for what it is, but that everything that is true would resonate deep within our hearts. Would you transform us this morning, God? We don't want to leave the same people as when we came in. So please speak, give us ears to hear, hearts and minds that understand, and hands and feet that are swift to obey, in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen, you can have a seat. We are presently midstream in a sermon series in which we're highlighting a number of cultural issues in which the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness, what St. Augustine called the city of God and the city of man and woman, often find themselves in stark contrast. In his classic book, The Upside-Down Kingdom, a guy by the name of Donald Craybill rightly says this, the values and norms of our society become so deeply ingrained in our minds that we find it difficult to imagine alternatives. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus presents his kingdom as a new order, breaking in upon and overturning old ways, old values, and old assumptions. If it does anything, the kingdom of God shatters these assumptions which govern our lives. And I love this line. As kingdom citizens, we cannot assume that things are right just because that's the way they are. That is fantastic. As kingdom citizens, we cannot assume that things are right just because that's the way they are. The upside-down perspective focuses the points of difference between God's kingdom and the kingdoms of this world, which is the whole point of this series. In fact, I would propose that at times, the differences between kingdoms can seem so extreme that if you are anything at all like me, you may experience a sense of spiritual vertigo with each passing year wondering, what in the world? Ever watch the news or read the paper or your news feed online and wonder, what in the world? is going on? What planet am I living on? The longer I live, the more intensely I pursue God and his design. The more accurately, the more acutely I can relate to the words of 1 Peter 2.11 when it says, this world in its present state is not our home. Words such as those spoken by Jesus, recorded in John 15, have become very personal. If you were of this world, said Jesus, the world would love you, yet because I chose you to come out of this world, the world will hate you. Not maybe. Don't be surprised. Don't be shocked. The world will hate you. Philippians 3 and 20 says, we are citizens of heaven. A truth captured in a 1983 hit song by Petra in which they described Christ's followers this way. We are strangers. We are aliens. We are, as Christ followers, not of this world. This morning I propose that Jesus' parable of the wise and foolish builders shines a spotlight on yet another arena in which God's kingdom and his citizens stand in stark contrast to the world and its citizens. Firstly, Jesus philosophically teaches 
that whether we are conscious of it or not, every human being is building their life upon something. Every human being is building their life on something. He goes on to say that wise people build their lives on the rock of God's instruction. Whoever hears these sayings of mine, says Jesus, and does them, I will liken them to a wise person who built their house on a rock. Jesus is saying that instead of inward navel-gazing or outwardly seeking counsel at the watering holes of the world, the wise person will seek God's face. God gives us the Bible to be our constant source of direction as the Holy Spirit leads, guides, and directs us. He gives us the gift of the Holy Spirit who enables us to choose between good and flee from evil, giving us, gifting us to discern between what is right from what is wrong, and then empowering us with courage to follow his design. The Holy Spirit provides insight and illumination into making God-honoring choices that without him we would have been completely oblivious to. Psalm 119 says, Your word is a lamp unto my feet, and a light unto my path. Proverbs 3, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your path. The older I get, the more I find myself claiming James 1 and 5, especially since becoming a dad several years ago. If any of you lacks wisdom, exhibit A. If any of you lacks wisdom, ask God, who give to all liberally and without reproach. And my favorite part of that promise is, and it will be given. In contrast, foolish people build their lives on the shifting sands of everything but God's instruction. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish person who built their house on the sand, I've visited several of Prince Edward Island beaches. And I've seen numerous signs posted by the government prohibiting people from walking and playing on the sand dunes. Jesus isn't describing tourists or children spending an afternoon rolling down the sand. He's talking about people who are actually setting up shop. They're trying to put down roots, build something solid and substantial on the sand which in many cases is here today and gone tomorrow. His observations demand that every one of us this morning ask, what am I building my life upon? To what end? For whom? Jesus teaches that every person build their lives upon something. He goes on to note, secondly, that not all building materials are equal. Not all building materials are equal. Pre-pandemic, before the price of lumber cost you an arm and a leg, I have watched both my father and my father-in-law in the wood lot pick two by four and pick two by six out of a pile and sight them down to see that they weren't warped or twisted because they were keenly aware, and this lesson holds true for every area of life, if you use a lower or poor quality material, nine times out of ten, you'll end up with a lesser finished product. Trying to cut corners. See, I, I would just go for the cheapest. 
not being an artisan. But trying to cut corners, if not done with great discernment, can seriously impact the final result. There is a world of difference between a sandcastle and a fortress made out of stone. A lesson, too, of the three little pigs almost learned the hard way. A straw house will not protect you from the big bad wolf or from the storm. A sanctuary made out of sticks will not serve us any better. You can tie things down. You can put plywood over your windows. You can buy a generator. You can fill your bathtub with water. You can stock up on soup and candles. But the only thing that will keep your house from being demolished is having it set firmly upon the rock of Jesus Christ. Only the brick, only the rock can stand up to the onslaught of the storm or the attacks of the wolf. First Corinthians puts it this way. No one can lay any foundation other than the one we already have, Jesus Christ. Anyone who builds on that foundation may, can, use a variety of materials. Gold, silver, jewels, wood, hay, straw. On the judgment day, fire will reveal what kind of work each builder has done. The fire will show if a person's work has any value. How about the storm will show? How about the big bad wolf will show? If a person's work has any value, Paul, echoing Jesus, is saying that building with and relying upon the wrong materials will result in a boatload of hurt, both in the here and now and in the hereafter. So in Matthew 7 and Luke 6, Jesus is teaching that our choice of building materials can often be a matter of life or death, leading to the question, Am I, are you, are we building with the right materials? And here's where I'd suggest that we're presented with another example of cultural kingdoms in conflict. Because the humanist, humanist culture in which we live propagates that each and every person has the obligation and the responsibility to design our lives for ourselves using whatever materials we would like to choose from. Not only that, but we are encouraged to pragmatically build our lives on whatever foundation works for us, which usually means the one which conflicts the least with whatever it is I want to achieve, I want to accomplish, and I want to pursue. It's why Paul warned Timothy, a time is coming and some translations have in brackets, and is already here, when people will no longer listen to sound and wholesome teaching. They will follow their own desires. They will look for teachers who will tell them whatever their itching ears want to hear. They will reject the truth. They will chase myths. The kingdom of this world endorses, encourages, and expects us to design ourselves an expectation, a position that runs directly opposed to Jesus' call in Matthew 16. If anyone desires to come after me, 
let them deny themselves. Jesus does not call us to design ourselves. He calls us to deny ourselves. Paul echoes this in Galatians 2.20. My old self has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Or more simply in 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul said, I die daily, or every day I die. Jesus teaches that one's response to these two issues, one's choice of foundation and one's choice of building materials, are two of the things which distinguish the wise person from the fool. Every one of us build. And regardless what foundation you decide to build your life upon, you can be guaranteed of one other thing. The storm and the wolf and the fire all make house calls to every single one of us. In this world, you will have trouble, promises Jesus in John 16. We sing this, when sorrows like sea billows roll, though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, when darkness seems to hide his face in every high and stormy gale, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Some storms are just part of a bigger system that catch multitudes of people in their vortex. Other storms are self-generated. They're the consequences of bad or ill-informed choices. But either way, none of us regardless of how godly or evil we may be, get an immunity idol from the huff and puff of the wolf or the storms of life. Jesus is crystal clear that one of the primary factors that will determine whether our days are spent in a futile existence of spinning our wheels in frustration or of living life to the full, a life of survival or destruction will be our choice of building materials and upon which foundation we choose to build upon. I'm going to ask Chris and the band to come back. The year was 1863 when another carpenter by the name of Edward Moat wrote a hymn in his head when he was walking to his shop where he made cabinets. He got to his shop and he wrote it down And he tucked it in his pocket and he kind of forgot all about it until a week later he was visiting a pastor friend whose wife was dying after he prayed with the lady. They looked around the house for a hymn book to sing from and finding none, Moat asked, the guy had a lot of uh, courage to do this. Moat asked, hey, would you like to hear the song that I wrote a week ago? What's she going to say, right? She agreed. So out of his pocket, Moat pulled the following lyric and sang these words. When darkness veils his lovely face, I can rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, whatever it may be, my anchor holds within the veil on the rock. His oath, his covenant, his blood support me in what? The whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all 
my hope and stay. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. You know why? Because all other ground is sinking sand. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. Who or what are we building our lives upon? To what end? For whom? Will you stand as we close with a song?